Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. And with 38% of the precincts reporting, the WNPR AccuWolfie Sports Desk is calling it. The Cubs win the World Series over the Red Sox 4-2. Kion, you can't say that. They haven't even played any games yet. That is so 2014. Sports is not a game anymore. Sports is a, a mathematical sub-discipline that studies complex systems, looking at weather patterns, the migration of birds, changes in supermarket sales of baby wipes and salad mix, and, and numbers of ear infections at public swimming pools. We're able to assemble a probability matrix and tell you what's going to happen without having to watch all the throwing and the kicking and the batting and the shoving. But where's the fun in that? Not having to watch the game frees up time for life-enhancing activities like Instagramming your food and sneakers. What if you get it wrong? What is this, 1995? There's no wrong anymore, only probabilities. If I say there's an 87% chance Ryan Howard will lead the league in strikeouts and then he doesn't, I'm not wrong. It's just that the 13% thing happened. Well, then the whole concept seems pointless. Wait, I'm getting news from the Matrix. Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen spent the day on a beach yesterday. That means the USA is going to beat Argentina in soccer tomorrow night. I know, I know. It's it's hard to see the connections, but they're there, Greg. Human effort is meaningless. Data is everything. Today on the show, something happened in baseball last night, and I haven't really had time to catch up with it. And now he's agreed to spend the rest of the afternoon playing paintball with Clarence Thomas. Colin McEnroe. Well, the reason for that is, uh, in fact, a Supreme Court decision uh, went uh, involving Connecticut and involving firearms went away that uh, Clarence would not be happy about. So just to cheer him up, you know, I thought I would do something with him. All right. So here's what we're going to do. A couple of housekeeping items. First of all, at the end of the show today, we're going to take your calls, open up the lines. I feel like uh, in this election season, you need to talk. We need to listen. So we're going to do that. We'll also talk about that Supreme Court decision, which uh, significantly affects the gun laws of Connecticut. Uh, also, I should tell you that we had a we had announced, not that many places, but we'd announced a plan to do a show from New Haven uh, tomorrow. We're not doing that show. So if you know anybody who was planning to attend it, it was going to be in front of a live audience in a hotel lobby. It's not happening. Please make sure people don't show up. All right. So uh, we're going to begin by talking about the campaign. Then we're going to talk about last night's uh, basketball game. Uh, we're going to begin with Phil, Philip Bump. Like many Washington Post reporters, he was planning to spend the day in a dark room looking at his now useless Trump campaign credentials and wondering what what happened. How did things go wrong? Uh, but uh, he does write about politics for the Washington Post column, The Fix. We've persuaded him to rise up out of the terrible funk uh, he has been in uh, and talk to us about what's going on in the Trump campaign. And Phil Bump, actually, uh, you may or may not be in a funk, but it would be harder for you to be in a bigger funk than the Trump campaign itself. And maybe we could just sort of start with the polls. What what are we seeing now in terms of polling on Trump's candidacy? Sure. So uh, what we're seeing is a campaign that is not doing very well. Uh, if you compare where Trump is now at this stage in the campaign relative to Election Day, he's doing much worse than any Democrat or Republican going back uh, to at least 2000, probably before then in terms of uh, the actual average of polls. What's happening here is interesting. It's not that he, Hillary Clinton is gaining against him in the polls, but it's not because she's improving. It's because he's doing worse. Uh, and that's a trend we've seen continue over the past couple of weeks. 
Uh, we should say that Phil Bump is coming to us via Skype today. Skype, a communication device in a delicious yogurt parfait. Um, so um, this it's hard to maybe map poll results onto events out there in the field, although in this case, maybe not that hard. I mean, we know that uh, that what they, that uh, this probably started right around the time he made his comments about Judge uh, Curiel, right. followed by a bunch of denunciations from party leaders. It can't possibly be helping him that the Paul Ryans and the Mitch McConnells and a whole bunch of other subsidiary Republicans are taking shots at him. Um, I, I don't think it helps. No, I don't know that it hurts him a whole lot. I mean, part of the reason that Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee is because he threw the you know the establishment out the window essentially. Uh, but you know, I mean, I think that in order for him to gain ground among Republicans who didn't support him in the primary, it is not necessarily the case that Paul Ryan needs to get on board. But he Republicans in general need to say this guy is doing the right thing. And it's hard for Paul Ryan to say his comments about Judge Curiel were the right thing to do because it seems pretty objectively the case that they weren't necessarily the best thing to say, either politically or just in general. Uh, and I think that you know if he were able to get the Republican establishment to rally around him, I think it would help him to some extent, uh, but I don't know that it would actually end up making a big difference. So, uh, first of all, there's some big uh, news about staffing in the Trump campaign, and we'll come to that, and it may change the conditions that we're about to talk about. But, you know, ordinarily, if your poll numbers are sagging this way and it looks like it's tracking along a certain style of your campaign, one possible uh, reaction to that would be to stop doing the thing that you're doing. And it d doesn't seem so far as though whether we'll, we'll, we'll hear Donald Trump here talking uh, about Orlando. It's radical. Islamic terrorism. It's a whole new thing. It's radical Islamic terrorism. And it's not guns. You know, I saw the president talk immediately about guns. It's not guns. It's terrorism. It's terrorism. It's not guns. It's terrorism. So over the last few days, I mean, well, going back to last Monday, he was saying some fairly odd things about President Obama, maybe knowing more than he was saying about the Orlando shooting. And this has been followed by a cascade of rather odd pronouncements. One of the things that he said over the last few days is that maybe racial racial profiling isn't such a bad thing. It works in other in other countries. We want to give it a try here. Um, I mean, it doesn't seem as though he's breaking away from the comments that he makes to a certain fairly concentrated base in trying to talk to a larger audience audience about other subjects. No, that's right. And he, that, that speech last Monday is actually interesting because it was read off of a teleprompter. This wasn't his standard, I'm going to speak off the cuff and say random things, which has gotten him into trouble before. This is a planned set of remarks, actually, and ironically, given the conversation we're about to have, mostly before a group of Corey Lewandowski, his campaign manager's friends and family. Uh, you know, it was a very friendly audience, which is why I heard all that cheering. But yeah, I mean, Donald Trump his watchword so far in the campaign has been, I'm going to do my own thing. I know what to do. I won the primaries. Uh, and the Republican establishment has been very, with increasing urgency, trying to impress upon him that, no, this is a different ballgame. This is everyone's voting one time on one day, and you need to change what you're doing because this is a different type of campaign. And, it, you know, so far, Trump has been unwilling to heed that advice. So, uh, in fact, yes, Corey Lewandowski was uh, fired as the manager of the Trump campaign uh, today. That, that was announced today. Um, and meanwhile, and this is something that you guys have been covering, one of the questions 
coming out of the primary season and going into the general election was to what degree was the Trump operation going to stop being this kind of mom and pop shop that was him and about two or three other people, Hope Hicks, Corey Lewandowski, and B, I mean, the Hillary Clinton campaign is like one of the 17 largest companies in the world or something now. I mean, there's just a lot of people working for this campaign. Uh, Trump has been in the opposite direction. And it only seems that maybe like right now, maybe today, he's starting to talk about staffing a normal-sized presidential campaign. Right. So, I mean, last week he was talking about how he was just going to let the Republican National Committee run the national operation, that he was going to, you know, keep a constrained uh, small staff. You know, I think one of the issues over the long term is that it, it is negatively reinforcing to his campaign if he is doing terribly there's not a lot of people who are going to want to take that risk and go work for a campaign which is doing very poorly. Uh, so I think that hurts his staffing as well. You know, I mean, it is it is very true that over the course of the primary season, he didn't have much staff, and he it was man he managed to be successful, albeit barely. Uh, despite that, uh, and I think that he is. I don't know the extent to which now he has learned he needs to change because it seems like. You know, on a, at any given three-hour period, he's either saying, no, I'm going to stick with what I'm doing, or no, I'm going to change entirely. And it's basically whoever asked him last, you know, that's sort of what you have to go with. So there are a lot of ways to interpret what happened today, and, and uh, it's probably wrong to, to go too far in trying to interpret something without knowing it. Uh, there are reports that uh, Corey Lewandowski has been saying to people that uh, the kids didn't like him, uh, that Trump's uh, offspring uh, didn't like him, and, and Jared Kushner, who's uh, Ivanka's husband, didn't like him. Uh, but uh, and who knows whether that's true or not. But one thing that we do know is that in all pro- probability, Paul Manafort, who's been who's this kind of ominous grease, he's this longtime uh, political consultant. He's actually a guy who's from Connecticut originally. His family is very well known here in the construction business. But he's been a national and international consultant. And there's been this sort of constant tension uh, behind the scenes in the Trump campaign. What kind of campaign is this going to be? With Lewandowski, uh, who seemed like more a, a, of an extension of Trump's id, um, it, it's, it seemed like it might go one way. Manafort's always being held up as the guy who can quiet things down, professionalize things, play, get Trump to play to uh, a wider base. And I assume that the the thinking right now would be with Corey gone and Manafort in that that maybe we'll see a little bit of that. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible, but it's not as though Manafort arrived yesterday. No. You, know, you know, according to, to reports, he has essentially been in charge of the campaign since the beginning of April. And, you know, over the course of that time period, yes, Trump locked up the nomination. But at the same time, he's done almost nothing uh, to, to get ready for the general election. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I think that part of the challenge is at the end of the day, as with any campaign, it is the candidate who is the all-powerful CEO. And if Donald Trump doesn't want to do something, there's nothing that you can do to make him do it. Uh, and usually candidates defer to their campaign staff, uh, often because that campaign staff is experienced and has done this before and has had wins. Uh, and so candidates will say, OK, look, you know, my gut says X, but you're saying Y, you know how to do this, let's go with Y. Donald Trump, I think, is, has, a, has a group of folks who haven't run a presidential campaign before are making recommendations. And I, you just, it's hard not to get the impression that he's simply exercising his veto uh, and it's not working very well as a result. Although I do think that if they're going to staff up now, if they're going to make some HR decisions about the campaign, which I think they're making today, right. you know, that maybe they want somebody like Manafort involved, that Lewandowski is, 
you know, he really doesn't have any sort of big stage experience. Maybe they made that decision too. That if we're gonna if we're gonna hire a bunch of people, let's hire hire them with Manafort or or somebody anyway who's got a little bit more major league experience than, than Lewandowski. Hey, Phil, I want to ask you also about money. I mean, we had an odd thing where the Trump campaign asked for a hundred thousand dollars in donations uh, during the day on on Saturday. There's also a lot of reports that the people who normally the big donors who normally fund Republican campaigns are slowly slipping away, slinking off into the night, maybe not, not going to uh, fund the Trump campaign. They're even having problems getting companies to underwrite certain aspects of the Republican National Convention. There just does seem to be kind of a dollar sign problem that's in general popping up here with this campaign. And not only does it not seem to be fully professionally staffed, but the question of where the money is going to come from, it seems unusually open right now. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an extremely important point. In part because uh, you know Trump's campaign strategy has always been I'm going to roll up, I'm going to do a, a an appearance, uh, you know, and that'll get me the votes. That doesn't work in the general. As I said earlier, you know, I mean, everyone's voting on the same day, so you can't simultaneously have Donald Trump in 50 different states. You need a lot of money, and he has said in the past he's tried to manage expectations by saying he doesn't think he needs as much money as people are talking about. The number is usually thrown out there as a billion dollars, uh, which is obviously a lot of money. Uh, but the weird thing about this appeal over the weekend was. You know, it was an email that said, I need $100,000 to match Hillary Clinton on ad spending. And Hillary Clinton and her allies have done a lot of money, spent a lot of money in battleground states uh, trying, to, trying to get out there and help define Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, who ran as this guy who was funding his own way, a guy who's worth theoretically $10 billion, is now saying, hey, I need you to help chip in because otherwise I can't get $100,000 on, on a short time frame. You know, I mean, that alone is a weird thing. But then that's compounded by the fact that a lot of donors, like a lot of staff, like a lot of people in the establishment, are wary of where this thing is going. And they don't want to put a lot of money into a campaign where I think everyone still thinks there is a very real chance Donald Trump says or does something that totally makes his campaign fall apart in a way that's not salvageable. And then that's just throwing good money away. Yeah, I wondered if the money call on Saturday was one of two things. First of all, just a dry run. Let's see how it goes when we try to raise money. This is a very typical way the campaigns do it. Just these email blasts, we have to hit this target, let's go. Or possibly some of the major donors who are on the fence might have said, you know what, let's see Let's see what you can do. Show us that you can actually conventionally raise money. Show us that we would not be the only ones on the hook for this. Um, prove to us that you have the ability to raise money from the people who follow you. Um, it's it's Because I agree, there's no real common sense explanation uh, for why he would need $100,000 from donors on that particular day. Right. I mean, but I mean, I think the broader point here is that it undermines his entire primary season value proposition, which is I can't be bought. I'm doing this myself. And everyone always knew that he wasn't going to put up a billion dollars of his own money, even though he had in the past actually said he was willing to do that. Uh, I just it's hard for me to see he has this committed base of support a group of people that got him through the primary season that is less than a majority of the Republican Party. Uh, it's hard to see where there's going to be. I mean, he's certainly not going to see Bernie Sanders-esque, you know, grassroots uprising of people throwing money at him. He's very unlikely to see even a Hillary Clinton-esque mix of people giving him money and establishment people writing bigger checks, uh, which is its own problem. And I think it's something that he sort of set himself up for through his uh, primary rhetoric. You know, as all of these problems compound and, and as some the uh, admonitions and rebukes come from major Republican leaders and, and other major Republican leaders just say that they can't vote for this guy um, and, and he continues to make mistake after mistake, um, it, it, 
I mean, it, it, we're sort of wrestling with this problem. I think everybody in the press is wrestling with this problem. It just doesn't seem possible that there could be a convention insurgency, that there can be anything done uh, about the delegate hold he has going into Cleveland. But there's like this other narrative that you just can't get out of your head, which is uh, a party that is sinking this fast and a guy who may be pulling the party down with it. Just it, It's just such a blinking light on the dashboard. You wonder if there's some possible way they may try anyway to to get him off the ticket well there there actually is a way which is essentially that you know the 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 metaphor that i always like to use when we're first talking about the contested convention is this is a home court game for the republican party they not not only is it a home court game but it is uh, you know they set the ground rules and you know using a switching to a baseball analogy they can essentially change the rules so that these delegates are unbound and can vote for whoever they want uh at the convention the problem, there are two problems with that. The first problem is, obviously, first of all, it is completely undermining the entire primary process, would anger a whole lot of people, especially Trump supporters, who would then either vote against uh, Donald Trump or stay home in November, which wouldn't do them a lot of good on the presidential ticket. Uh, but the second problem is they don't really have a strong candidate to step in and replace it. There were 16 other people that ran against Trump. Voters did not prefer any of those 16 people. Uh, so it's hard to say, you know, oh, we're going to let's just have Marco Rubio do it when Marco Rubio got fewer states than Ted Cruz and, you know, only did slightly better than John Kasich, right? Um, so th- those two things, yes, it is, it is technically possible for the party to wrench this thing away from Donald Trump, but it is not politically feasible either from the internal politics of the party or from actually trying to win in November. It seems as though the, the, the more likely thing, I mean, assuming that they can't pull this thing out of its nosedive and, and have it be kind of a recognizable mainstream political campaign, which it has refused to be so far. If they can't do that, it seems more likely that people who really need to, a la Mark Kirk, and uh, Mark Kirk, who's already done this in Illinois, people who need to are just going to be free to peel away, right? The the message will go out from, from what's left of party leadership to say, whatever you need to do, whatever you need to say, however you need to run in your Senate race, your House race, your gubernatorial race, your, your local you know, legislative race. Just do it. We don't care. Uh, you don't owe Donald Trump anything. Yeah, and we've already seen, you know, there were reports even a couple of months ago that Mitch McConnell has sort of signed off on, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell signed off on letting Senate candidates do that sort of thing. I think the main question over the long term here is the extent to which Donald Trump has poisoned the well with non-white voters. And if he has poisoned that well, if it is the case that no one, no matter how much he turns his campaign around, that they are not going to, you know, no one is who is uh, a, an African-American person or a Latino person is going to come on board with the Trump campaign simply by virtue of some of the things he said and done. If that's the case, then the Republican Party has a bigger problem because they need to distance themselves from the rhetoric and not just the candidate. Uh, and I think that's a bigger long-term problem. And after the 2012 campaign, when Mitt Romney didn't do very well with Hispanic voters, the party set about, we want to fix this. We want to do a better job with Latinos. And now they have a candidate who's actually made that much, much worse. You know, one of the things that we typically say, and I think we're usually right about this, is that vice presidential choices or running mate choices don't really mean anything. They don't really do you very much good. They can hurt you a bit in the case of a Sarah Palin, uh, but they're typically not very significant. But then what we always say is, but this one time, maybe it'll make a difference. So I'm going to do that and say one thing that Trump could do, one of the few 
big moves he has left to make in between now and Cleveland would be maybe the announcement of a running mate. And if he announced the right kind of running mate, it could be one of several signals, signal flares he could send up to concern Republicans to say, no, I'm not really going to be that unconventional. And, and look, look who's running with me. Uh, you know him or her. You trust him or her. See, things are going to be OK. Yeah, I mean, it's theoretically possible, yes. I mean, and one of the things that uh, Josh Barrow, writes for Business Insider, made a great point, which is that, you know, this is a good opportunity. But Trump has demonstrated no interest in policy whatsoever. So this is a good opportunity for some politician to step in, be vice president, and essentially define what the policy positions of the Trump presidency are. I mean, that, that, that exists. But if you consider the fact that there was a study that found, and you made this point, that Sarah Palin actually cost the Republican ticket at least 2, 000, or 2 million votes uh, in 2008, uh, simply because people didn't like her. I find it very hard to believe that that many people are unwilling to back John McCain as president because of the vice president, that there are going to be a whole slew of people who are willing to back Trump as president just because of who he picks as his vice president. I don't know. You know, there's only one person who has demonstrated an ability to really energize a large part of the Republican base uh, in a way that Trump would need a vice president to do. And the only person who's done that is Donald Trump. Yeah. And so there isn't another Donald Trump out there who could come out and, and get people energized in the way that Trump has, especially to overcome people's reticence about Trump's uh, presidency itself. All right. That would be very tempting to him, though, to pick himself as a running mate, somebody he loves and trusts. <laughs> I'm, telling you. Uh, I'm telling you. You know, I mean, I. I, I sort of tongue-in-cheek advocate for Ivanka Trump to be his VP pick uh, because I think she would be very good, but also it would give him this sense of, you know, this, this, this family legacy, which I think he would, uh, he would enjoy. Right. There's nothing that you can say anymore that's tongue-in-cheek. It all just comes true, so uh, don't even bother saying <laughs> it. Hey, very quickly, I mean, I, I, this probably is something that, in general, your corporate communications people have to say something about. But, I mean, the, you know, he did. I mean, you have joined a list of other press organizations who, whatever this means, have had your uh, press access or your official press credentials to the Trump campaign revoked. Does this does it matter? Does it mean anything? I mean, what's the general feeling at the at the Washington Post about this? Uh, well, I, I I can't and probably shouldn't really speak to this. You know, I mean, I think that the Post, uh, the, the you know Marty Baron, who was the executive editor of the Post, released a great statement saying that this wouldn't affect our coverage. We have a great team of reporters who are covering the Trump campaign who always have been. Uh, Jenna Johnson, who's done really exceptional work, she's just going to the campaign events anyway and just getting a ticket and going in with the crowd. It hasn't affected what we're doing, uh, you know, but I think that it, it is up to the voters to consider what it means to have a presidential candidate who gets unhappy with one article in particular and then decides he's going to try out and cut off access from the media. You know, we still do our jobs as objectively as we ever did. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think that, that that in itself tells us something about the candidacy. All right. Well, Phil Bump, great to talk to you today. Uh, Phil Bump, who's been on our show before, and I hope uh, will come back again, writes about politics for the Washington Post column, The Fix. Thanks for being with us. Of course. My pleasure. All right. Uh, we're going to take a little break. Uh, when we come back, we have, uh, well, I am just dying to have a conversation uh, about last night's basketball game, about the uh, mood in the city of Cleveland, but also about the way that sometimes sports um, overcomes all the quantitative analysis and really makes us surprised in, in a very happy way. So um, all of that is still to come. Be wise. Reformation is his motivation. Ideals on his list are high. Here's a tip when you vote for Trump. A new vision for us. Triumph, triumph, Donald Trump. Your president. 
All right, uh, we're back in just a second. We're going to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers. And b- by the way, if you don't, there, I know there's people who just like don't like sports and they don't want sports on public radio. I promise you, we will have this conversation in such a way that will make you feel welcome and intrigued, uh, even if you don't even know who played last night. All right, so uh, I have to say a couple other things. I have a couple little housekeeping matters. As I said, uh, we you may have seen somewhere on social media that we were doing a show live from the lobby of a hotel in New Haven tomorrow. We're not doing that, so please don't show up for uh, live at that uh, hotel lobby. Instead, we're um, we're going to do that show eventually. We're going to put together the show on that topic. The topic uh, is kind of about how culture deals with um, matters of finance. That uh, you know, after two thousand eight, um, there were movies and books and plays um, all trying to kind of make sense of uh, our agony and our terror, uh, and and maybe even help us understand what goes on in Wall Street and how it affects the average person. Uh, and the question is, you know, how good a job did any of that culture? do so uh, we will be uh, we'll be talking about that at some point just not tomorrow uh, tomorrow we're going to re- rerun our unreliable narrator show so uh, we can catch our breath on that uh, and then also today at the end of the show we are going to talk um, we're going to open the phones for you in the final segment and we're going to make it possible for you to call in at 860-275-7266 don't do that quite yet uh, but it'll be 860-275-7266 jot the number down uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about how you're feeling about this campaign obviously there's just a lot of anxiety. Uh, And people, I've discovered on Mondays that people often need to get things off their chest. Uh, We'll also talk about the Supreme Court uh, decision not to hear a case which materially affects the gun laws of Connecticut. It's about the gun laws of Connecticut. So uh, meanwhile, we are, this is an exciting uh, moment for me personally, uh, because, well, I mean, you sort of think about the famous trios that there have been out there. There's like the Bee Gees, uh, there's the Three Musketeers, there's uh, Destiny's Child. I can't really think of any other ones, except, of course, the host of Hang Up and Listen. We now have the final charm uh, on our charm bracelet. Uh, Mike Pesco has been on this show many times. Stefan Fatz has joined us recently. Josh Levine, who's the, the brooding Athos, I think, of, uh, of Hang Up and Listen. Uh, he's the executive editor at Slate and the host of the Slate Sports Podcast, as I'm saying, Hang Up and Listen, has agreed to talk to us today uh, about last night's excitement. So first of all, welcome to the show. Big fan of your show. Yeah. <laughs> I don't hear him. That's really bad. <laughs> that was such a great introduction, you know. I just feel like uh, he should be here somehow. Uh, all right, we're working on that. We're we're going to work on that deal right now and see what happened um, and find out. what you know, I'm going to put them on hold. There we Okay. So I'll tell you other things as well. So I can very quickly now tell you what the Supreme Court decision was. I just blew past that anyway. So uh, today in a case that's called, uh, let's see, Shoe versus Malloy, um, we had a decision uh, on – uh, we had the decision, decision by the Supreme Court not to hear that case. Uh, that would have challenged the so-called assault weapons ban uh, here in Connecticut. All right. So am I ready to go to this? All right, we'll give it. We'll give it another try. Josh Levine, can you hear me? Uh, something very deeply wrong here. We may be going to telephone calls even sooner than we thought. Um, are we sure there's no fader that's down or anything? There's no phone fader that's, that's not down. All right, so we're having a little problem with that as well. Okay, so uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm first of all going to um, set up with you. Uh, a little bit of what happened last night. And at some point or other, we will have Josh Levine. And if not, we can take phone calls on that too. Uh, In fact, if you were in one way or another uh, inspired last night uh, by the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers victory, uh, give us a call, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. And you can also tweet at us at WNPR. 
Colin. Um, no, I will tell you a little bit about how I was feeling about this last night, which was that, you know, I mean, the NBA playoffs are not necessarily something that I watch with rapt interest, you know, over the years. Some years they're interesting, some years they're not. But to set the stage for those of you who don't pay very much attention to this kind of thing, um, you had the team that had basically set the record for the most wins in a season, the Golden State Warriors, and they're like some new kind of uh, version of a basketball team in some ways. They don't seem that much like other bas- other great NBA teams of the past. They're this smooth, efficient uh, Tesla. You know, they have all these sort of beautiful uh, electronic parts. Uh, they, uh, they share the ball. Uh, they have great outside shooters. They have um, this kind of unflappable quality, and they're very deep, too. They have maybe 10 great players. Um, they were up against the Cleveland, Cal- Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cleveland Cavaliers, of course, always this uh, well, Cleveland, uh, Cleveland always a really, really gritty underdog city, a city that's always uh, trying to, to prove its worth. And it's gone 52 years without a national sports championship. And all of that changed last night. I'm going to make one more attempt. Should I make one more attempt to put, uh, yeah, to put Josh Levine on the air? All right. So uh, Josh Levine, no, they're waving me off on that one. This must be exciting for the people at home, though. <laughs> thinking, I wonder if he'll ever get this guest on the air. So anyway, uh, let me try to set this up even more. And as I say, if this was a meaningful game for you and you want to talk about it, 860-275-7266. You can take Josh Levine's place. 860-275-7266. Um, so what happened last night was the seventh game. And I'll sort of set that up even in a different way, which is to say that sports these days has been kind of overrun by quantitative analysis. And, and quantitative analysis has been a, made it possible for people who watch sports, who play sports, who manage and coach sports to know a lot more about what's going to happen uh, and to, to make decisions based on, on figures. Uh, and I think what's happened, though, is that – and so there's also been this whole sort of new development uh, of a class of journalists uh, who use quantitative analysis to p- predict what's going on in sports who, who, and who tell you. I mean, 538 is the most obvious example. Nate Silver probably a little bit more famous for having um, – for his political predictions, but he's also got a huge sports component for uh, to what he does. He's on an ESPN website, and so um, one of the places that you can go to find out what the statistics tell you is going to happen is at 538. Well, everything that happened in this series in, ter- in terms of, first of all, how the two teams presented themselves at the beginning of this series, although not at the beginning of the season, but at the beginning of the series, suggested that Cleveland probably wouldn't do all that well, and then Cleveland lost two games, and then it seemed absolutely impossible that Cleveland was going to be able to win this championship. And, you know, at that point, you sometimes see in the con- among the conventional sports writers, the ones who haven't necessarily signed on to this whole notion of quantitative analysis, that they've been a little bit infected by it, too. You know, that they say they're not, uh, but, uh, but they're a little bit infected by it. So you saw sports writers and sports commentators saying, yeah, no, it's all over. They can't possibly come back. Nobody's ever done this. Nobody's ever done that. As the series got out to three to one, they were saying the same thing. And one of the things that I realized as I was watching all this is that sports journalism has changed a little bit. It's gone from telling us, describing for us in really beautiful and exciting ways what happened um, uh, to telling us what's going to happen. And in fact, the truth is, we don't know what's going to happen. So last night, this, uh, you know, this big clunky crown Vic uh, of the Cleveland Cavaliers went up against this smooth humming Tesla of the Golden State Warriors. 
uh, and uh, won the seventh game and won it all. Now, a lot of it also was due to kind of something you also don't hear maybe quite as much, particularly in basketball these days, the sort of great man theory of basketball. So uh, for those of you who, once again, don't follow basketball very much, LeBron James came back several years ago to the city of Cleveland, his home, where he really wanted to bring them a national championship, having achieved that uh, elsewhere in Miami, uh, and has struggled to do that. Um, And at a certain point in this series, did this thing that can be so exciting for us when we watch sports, which is he just took this thing. He just took over this thing. He put it on his back and he decided that he just wasn't going to let this team win or lose. He wasn't going to let his team lose. He wasn't going to let the Golden State Warriors win. Um, Last night, for the last three and a half minutes, there was just kind of this seesaw thing where neither team could really exactly score. They were kind of deadlocked for about two of those three minutes and 30 seconds without the ability of either team to score a basket. Um, and, and at one point, it seemed as though the, uh, the Golden State Warriors had this beautiful open three-on-one fast break uh, where they would almost certainly score. And LeBron James just sort of came flying out of nowhere and blocked the ball off the backboard in, in a way that you, made you feel as though you were going to hear about the block, capital T, capital B, for many years to come. So... Um, that's sort of, you know, that's the scenario we're setting up here, and that's the thing that would be really interesting to talk about with Josh Levine, actually, that whole notion that maybe one of the things that restores the joy to sports is when the thing that doesn't happen, the thing that wasn't supposed to happen, does happen. The thing that everybody said was completely impossible uh, does happen. So anyway, uh, one of the other questions that remains will be, you know, kind of what is this going to mean for the legacy of LeBron James, too? Um, it seems as though at this point he gets to join the Olympian group. You know, he gets to join the Bill Russells and the Magic Johnsons and the Larry Birds and the Michael Jordans, that he gets to be one of those uh, titans up there in the clouds. But uh, I guess time will tell. I'll tell you what, we're going to take a break here. We're going to do open phones with you, assuming we can get phones to work at all. Otherwise, it's going to be me telling stories, which I'm happy to do. I mean, I've got a million of them. So, uh, but we're going to take a little break here, see how things are going. When we come back, I'd love to do some open phones with you about the Supreme Court decision or non-decision today, uh, and um, also about the uh, political campaign that's unfolding right here. And if not, I'm just going to just talk to you about my life for 20 minutes. And believe me, I can do that. All right. We'll be back after this. Just the writer of scripture version LeBron James. Now Ohio on top to me and change the game. Game. It's easy to see me smiling, y'all. Because I'm LeBron James. I'm LeBron James. Stay with us. We're opening up the phone lines for your comments about the campaign and the Supreme Court decision on Connecticut's gun laws. 860-275-7266. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Olivia Piper and Esther Shitu. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Drem and Green. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff committing flagrant fouls, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, we're canceling our New Haven appearance and airing a show about unreliable narrators. And now, back to Colin. I feel like an unreliable narrator. I keep telling people. 
people they can call in and they can't. All right, so our phones are not working now, which makes it impossible for us to get a guest on unless we can make Skype work uh, somehow. Uh, and we also can't take your phone calls. I'm really sorry about that. Uh, if that changes, we will let you know. Uh, I would be nobody would be happier than me to uh, to change all that. So uh, I'm going to do what we call vamping now, and what I'm going to do is uh, tell you a few different stories, some things that to, to tell you the truth. I've been thinking about uh, anyway. I have to tell you like this little story that I've, I haven't told anybody this story and I've been dying to tell it. Um, and it's um, it, it's probably meaningless. But so I was out on my bike the other night and uh, my phone rings uh, and I'm, I've got my phone in sort of the back pocket of my shirt and I can hear the ring and it's my son's ring. And that's probably the only reason why I would stop and answer the phone. So I stop, I get off my bike or I you know take one foot off the pedal, lean over, get the um uh, get the phone out to find out what it is he's calling me about because, you know, it's your son, you know, it could be an emergency, something like that. And so I'm talking to him and I'm standing in the road. I'm in the road you know, of this rather ritzy street in West Hartford. Uh, and there's a guy uh, up the hill at his house, at his kind of ritzy looking house. And you know those tanks guys have that they're it's some kind of herbicide, I assume. And they, they kind of have the tank kind of slung over their shoulder and then they've got this wand where they're spraying out this herbicide or whatever, whatever nasty stuff. Uh, and I could see him a little bit up the hill, and I was sort of standing in the road kind of near his driveway, talking on the phone. And, <laughs> and I swear to God, I watched him come down the driveway until he was at right where I was standing, spraying the herbicide like right where I was. I, I absolutely believe that anyway that he was using <laughs> that he didn't want me standing in the road talking on my cell phone near his driveway. Uh, and then he was using the herbicide to drive me away. And I thought, is this what it's going to be like in Donald Trump's America? Um, so what I've gone done is like every night I go back, I bicycle. But I've been tempted just to sort of stop my bike in the middle of the road right where it was before and talk on the phone again just to see if he comes down with the herbicide. Um, but then I'd have to go home and take a shower. I mean, who knows what's in that stuff? So um, anyway, that's what I wanted to get off my chest. And then I wanted to talk to you a little bit also. This is, you know, this is so much like how my WTIC show used to be. For 16 years, I would have, like, come on the air and I would talk. If nobody called in, fine, I would just talk some more. Uh, so, and I apologize if any of this seems boring or trivial. But uh, we don't really have a lot of choices right now. But fortunately, I have lots of things that I've been thinking about lately. Uh, one of the things is so uh, yesterday, Steve Metcalf, who writes uh, for us at WNPR.org about music, he and I went up to see Brian Wilson at Tanglewood. Now, Brian Wilson, of course, the founder of the Beach Boys, the genius behind the Beach Boys. Um, and he's now a man in his 70s. Uh, and he is uh, a man. Well, let, let me put it to you this way. All right. So for all of those of us who are all of us who are baby boomers, we didn't really. Steve and I were talking about this in the car on the way up. You know, we never really sort of thought too much about what it was like when our rock icons would get like really old. OK. And not that he's really old right now, but this is the first time I've ever been to a concert where the headliner, a rock concert, or allegedly anyway, where the headliner had to be kind of walked on stage by a stagehand or something who was like really physically supporting him. I'm not just talking about a, like a gentle arm on the elbow, but more that kind of thing where you really grab with a very strong arm the person's hand and walk them to where they need to be uh, in a way that suggests that really uh, that unsupported this guy really would have some what we call gait problems. So anyway, on every Every time that Brian came out on stage, he was walked to his piano and then walked away from his piano uh, in that manner. And it was just very disconcerting. Now, I have to say that 
in some ways this isn't as abrupt a shift as it might be with certain other performers because Brian Wilson has, as you probably know, if you've seen the movie Love and Mercy, he's always been somewhat frail. I mean, for most of his life, uh, he's been somewhat frail. I certainly saw uh, a concert in the 1980s where I was really concerned about his his ability to get all the way through uh, the evening. That was sort of for other reasons. But um, And then, you know, he's, I mean, I really do think this guy is one of the great geniuses of my lifetime, but because of the things that have happened and happened to him over the years, because of the problems that he's had, plus just because what happens when you get old and your voice becomes different, he really has quite a bit of difficulty singing, you know, in any kind of substantial range at this point. Um, and he solves this in various ways. He had with him uh, Al Jardine, who's one of his original bandmates in the Beach Boys. Per- perhaps more significantly, he had with him Al Jardine's son, Matt, who isn't exactly that young a guy anymore, I don't think, but he can still sing in those falsetto parts uh, that are so characteristic of Beach Boy songs. And so they had this kind of odd, almost tag team way of singing a song. Brian would sing as much of it as he possibly could. And then occasionally, on one or two occasions, Al Jardine, who's basically Brian's age, but maybe hasn't had quite the same group of problems, would maybe chime in, sing a little bit of the song. And then Brian would often just wave his hand in the direction uh, of Matt Jardine, and Matt Jardine would finish the... the uh, uh, the soprano part or the high high vocal parts of the song. And I, the whole thing, uh, it sounds like kind of a train wreck, but act- actually it was sort of sad and beautiful and weird and fun. Uh, he sang uh, a first set. And, and remember, this is at Tanglewood, which we associate more with, with classical uh, and symphonic music. But uh, he, he did a first set that was kind of a melange of, uh, of different songs from different periods of his career. But, you know, um, some of the old favorites. Uh, then he uh, t- took a break, got walked off stage, uh, came back after an intermission. They did the entirety of Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds, of course, is this legendary uh, Beach Boy album, which the the Beatles always said was so revolutionary, so different, such a departure from everything that had been considered pop music prior to that, that it really was the spur that goaded them uh, into making Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. So he performed, they band performed the entirety of this uh, album, which includes two instrumentals. Um, they went away uh, again and then came back and performed, I don't know, maybe 20 to 30 minutes uh, of uh, old Beach Boy songs, the kinds that get people uh, up out of their seats and, and kind of dancing in our increasingly old and rickety middle-aged and late middle-aged way. Um, and, and there were so many odd things about this concert, including in, in the early stages when he was playing so just sort of a, a mix of songs that were, you know, familiar. Or, I mean, a, a song like Don't Worry Baby, for example, that um, people my age grew up listening to you would see the audience do something that I typically have not seen, which is it was Tanglewood, so people kind of sit down and listen. And then he would come to the end of the song, and people would get up and give him a standing, like a lot of people would get up and give him a standing ovation for that song. And then they would sit back down. And then he would do another song that they knew, they loved, they cared about. And they would sit there very attentively listening to this song. Uh, And at the end of the song, they would get up and give that song another standing ovation. And then they would sit down for another song and so on. Uh, And you don't see that. I mean, I I can't remember ever seeing that particular thing. So anyway, I, I... it made me think more and more, and I, I'm awaiting the piece that Steve Metcalf will no doubt write for us about this um, this day. Um, but it made me think more and more about the unique position of, that Brian Wilson always had. And, and as I say, if you saw the movie Love and Mercy, maybe you get a sense of this. And, and that is, and, and particularly the thing that Pet Sounds was. So 
that sounds came at a moment where Brian Wilson had let the other Beach Boys go out on tour while he stayed and worked in the studio. And he ultimately decided that he didn't want to be on tour anymore. He didn't want to be that kind of a musician anymore. He didn't want to go on tour. He was never, ever, ever comfortable with it. In fact, there's a sort of paradox here that later in life, uh, after going through all of his psychiatric problems and his extensive uh, uh, uses of first illicit kinds of medication and then prescribed medication then being placed under the hands of a very inappropriate Svengali-like shrink. That Coming out of all that, he does seem to want a tour. I mean, he does, I don't think he needs to do this tour, but he does seem to want to go out on the road and, and sing to people now, even though, as I say, his voice is very ragged at this point. And, and it's not, you know, it's not necessarily, it's more... Um, it's very affecting to hear him try to sing these songs, but it maybe isn't you know, what you'd go for as a vocalist. But it made me think about Pet Sounds itself. Now, Pet Sounds, which, as I say, was this thing that kind of rewrote the DNA of pop music at that moment. You know, it has some very beautiful shimmering vocals on it. And, you know, um, wouldn't it be nice, obviously, is, you know, is a song that's really sung in a very lovely way, uh, a, a way that's very difficult to 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 recreate if you're not either Brian Wilson or Carl Wilson or apparently uh, Matt uh, <laughs> Matt Chartine. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, that's a, that's a beautiful vocal. But a lot of the vocals on Pet Sounds didn't really sound like that. And, and in one of the things that was shocking about Pet Sounds, I, I have to say, I was 12 or 13, 12, I guess, when Pet Sounds came out. And I remember, and I was a Beach Boys fan, but I liked all the kind of fun, you know, dance, dance, dance type music, all the surf songs and the car songs. And uh, it hadn't really occurred to me that they would do something other than that, that. I thought they would just continue making us all happy with this, you know, really terrific, fun, harmonic, exciting music about dumb stuff that as a 12-year-old really wasn't much part of, uh, much a part of my reality. I wasn't a surfer or a drag racer at that point, nor was I ever going to be one. But it just, you know, I just loved all that music. And then this album came out, and I remember kind of not liking it. Uh, I remember thinking, well, this isn't really what I'm looking for at all. This is, you know, this isn't anything like any of the albums that they've done before. And as I think back on it, it also wasn't anything like a pop album. It really didn't sound like pop music at that time. And there were so many ways in which it didn't sound like a pop album. But one of them was that some of the singing on it wasn't really pop music singing. Some of it was the, the earliest version of the kind of cracked and broken sound that Brian Wilson's voice now has uh, as a, a man in his 70s. That this was, you know, that pop music prior to that, I mean, if you sort of think of everything that had been on the radio, all of it was sung with quite a bit of gusto and it all, you know, it was it was rock and roll, right? It was supposed to sound like rock and roll. Uh, and it was supposed to sound like the way everybody thought you wanted something to sound coming out of your transistor radio back in those days. Um, so <laughs> it's starting to sound really old, aren't I? And th this really was this, I, I'm not sure really that anybody, maybe uh, someone will correct me about this, but not on the phone, I can tell you that. Uh, I don't know that anybody had really made an album that was just sort of somebody singing about what it was like to be them. This is what it's like to be me. This is kind of how I feel. These are the feelings welling up inside me. Uh, and and singing about it in a much less ornamented way. I mean, if you go back and listen to a lot of the songs on Pet Sounds, yeah, there's some beautiful little silky ballads like Caroline No, and then there's Wouldn't It Be Nice. But a lot of these songs, like I, I just wasn't made for these times, they sounded, they didn't sound ornamented. They sounded like the vocals of a guy who was very introspective 
and was really just trying to share with you in a very controlled way uh, what it was like to be him at that moment. So I don't know. At the end of the whole the show, whole show last night, it's also very interesting that um, I mean, Brian is always a little bit in another world and we don't really know whether that's due to problems he's had or medications he's taking or, or but I mean, he's like he's connected to our reality, but he's not fully partaking of it. And um, he's just operating at his own level and and doing things musically last night that nobody really could understand that he was doing. Um, but at the end, um, after he'd gone through this whole you know, welter of fabulous, fun, old Beach Boys hits, which uh, he and his band, he also has this amazing band who can replicate these choral harmonies that we all love so much. Um, so he went through all those things. He went through fun, fun, fun and all that kind of stuff. And um, and then at the end, so we thought he was done. Um, and, uh, and, and really, this, this is also, he's sort of a guy who doesn't really talk comfortably or spontaneously to the audience. Occasionally he'll engage in some kind of weird little game with the audience. He had everybody sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat with him last night for no particular reason that I could see. I mean, like it didn't really go anywhere or lead to anything. But anyway, he gets through this medley uh, of, you know, terrific hits from the 1960s. Uh, and then he says he's going to sing one more song and he sings Love and Mercy. Love and Mercy, a much more recent song. It was part of one of his several comebacks. Uh, this was the one I think that was uh, orchestrated for him by the producer Don was, uh, and it's uh, you, you you probably heard it, but it's it doesn't sound it's not a car song, it's not a beach song, it's not a sun song, uh, it's a song once again by a very thoughtful guy thinking, talking about, or singing about what he would like life to be, uh, and uh, I was sitting there thinking. Wow, he's ending his concert with that. And I will say also, and this was also surprising to me because of who Brian is, he actually managed to um, sing the lyric a little bit differently and work in a reference to Orlando uh, in, in the song. Um, he, he sang um, a lot of people getting shot out there and it really scares me, um, which is not part of the original lyric. And I thought, this this is his theme song now. His theme song isn't all the songs that people love so much, the people, the ones that people can't wait to get up and start dancing to. Uh, it's that's not that's not his theme song. This is his theme song now, and this is who he is. And at that point, I, I had managed to go the whole concert without getting choked up. I can't say the same thing for the guy sitting to my right, Steve Metcalf, um, who got choked up a lot earlier. <laughs> but um, but I got became very verklempt at this point. There's something just so touching about this whole. This guy's had such struggles. Uh, and he's written such beautiful music, and he's done so many great things for us. And it was so great just to hear that song and 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 have that be the song that's his symbol now. All right, so I'm going to go. That's what we call vamping. <laughs> when you can't make the phones work, our unreliable narrator show will be on tomorrow. You can either believe that or not. I don't. I wouldn't blame you at this point if you didn't. We're not going to be in New Haven tomorrow, uh, but we've got a full week of other exciting shows for you coming up the rest of the time. Thanks for joining us today. It's cool and all that LeBron James and the Cavaliers won last night, but don't you think everybody's being not so Cavalier about it? Maybe they should consider changing their name to the Cleveland Woohoo!